invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles God's Word that we will consider this morning from Psalm 150. Psalm 150. Hermanos, por favor, de encontrar en sus Biblias el pasaje de hoy, el Salmo 150. I'll first read it in English and then I'll read it in Spanish. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Aleluya. Alaban a Dios en su santuario. Alabenlo en su majestuoso firmamento. Alaban a Dios por sus hechos poderosos. Alabenlo según la excelencia de su grandeza. Alaban a Dios con sonido de trompeta. Alabenlo con arpa y lira. Alaban a Dios con pandero y danza. Alabanlo con instrumentos de cuerda y flauta. Alaban a Dios con címbalos sonoros. Alabanlo con címbalos resonantes. Todo lo que respira, alabe al Señor. Aleluya. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were with us in the beginning of this summer, we began this summer series in the Psalms by considering together Psalms 1 and 2. And we said, as we looked at that, that they form this doorway to blessedness. And along the way, this Psalter has been leading us toward that blessedness that is found where? In God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is leading us to enduring peace and lasting joy. Now, this journey is not an easy one. The life of faith is not easy. In fact, all kinds of psalms, such as hymns, laments, and thanksgivings, are found in the Psalter. But laments are found more than any other kind of psalm. And so we've seen that. And we can agree with those who say that it is a hard road to heaven. It's not all green pastures of blessings. It's filled also, we saw, with slows of despond, despair, and dark valleys of death. The road to blessedness is hard. And all the laments in this book are there to help us process our sadness along the way. If there are more laments than praises, as I just said, found in the Psalter, why then do we think that the Jewish people gave the title to this book, The Praises? The Praises. You know, our English title that we are so commonly used to, uh, the book of Psalms, that comes from the Greek translation, Salmos. But the Jewish people called these, this book the praises, the praises. Why not the laments, if there are more laments in this book than songs of praise? Well, it's for a very good reason. The majority of the laments, where are they found? They're found primarily at the front of the book. And one Old Testament scholar, Mark Furtado, says this, the dominant chord, 
At the front of the book of Psalms is the discord of suffering. So there's suffering at the beginning. The end of the Psalter is remarkably different. The book of praises is rightly named because it ends on a crescendo of praise. The crescendo reaches its peak in the very last psalm, the one we're considering today. Therefore, he says, in the macro structure of the book of Psalms, there is a clear movement, movement from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. So we we see that even though that road to heaven is hard, this final psalm here shows us that when we arrive at last, it will be glorious, glorious. And this psalm is giving us a glimpse, a picture, a sneak preview of that glory that is to come after the suffering that we face today. This psalm is ushering us in, we could say, into the concert hall of blessedness where we hear the holy hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now you might be wondering, where is hallelujah in this psalm? Well, if you're listening closely to the Spanish translation of this psalm, you heard it. Alleluia, right? But we don't find the term itself, hallelujah, in our English translations. And why? It's because the term hallelujah is a Hebrew term. Hallelujah is a Hebrew command with an object, the direct object attached at the end. First part of the word hallelujah is the command. Praise ye, or if you're Southern, praise y'all, right? Praise ye. All of you, praise. And then at the end, we have that suffix, yah, yah, which is short for Yahweh, the name of the Lord our God. So he is the one that we are to worship, the one who revealed himself to Moses out of the burning bush, saying, I am that I am, Yahweh. So we find here this great crescendo, this grand finale. This is what the whole Psalter has been leading us towards, the holy hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And that's why this psalm calls us over and over again to praise the Lord, to lift up that holy hallelujah with everything that has breath. And in brief, we can summarize what this psalm is telling us, that because Yahweh is very great, he deserves very great praise from all that he has created. That means that he deserves more than lazy attitudes in worship, more than dull singing, more than half-hearted worship. The one true God is very great, and he deserves very great praise from you, from me, and from every breathing creature on land and on sea. He deserves very great praise. Consider three points this morning as we look at this text. First, the object of our praise. Secondly, the orchestra of praise. And thirdly, the ovation of praise at the end. So first, we consider the object of praise in verses 1 to 2. I hope you have the Word of God open as we look together at this passage, where he says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. You see, the question is not what is the object of praise, but rather whom? Whom is the object of our praise? And as we already noted, we are commanded to praise Yah, Yah 
They. We are to praise the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, John the Baptizer, the God of the Apostle Paul. We are to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God whom we know now as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. This is the God who chose, as we remember, to let his Shekinah glory, his glorious presence, dwell in times past in the temple that was made by the Jews in the Old Testament era. And in verse 1, look at it, we're called to praise God where? It says in his sanctuary. Sanctuary means holy place. You might think this is referring to the Jewish temple, and for thousands of years, that is exactly where God chose to meet and dwell with his people, that they would worship him there in his sanctuary. But look at the second part of verse 2 there. It tells us which sanctuary. Ultimately, it refers to where? Praise him in his mighty heavens. Mighty heavens here is the same term that's used back in Genesis 1, where it speaks about God creating the expansive skies above, the heavenly places. And this is important for us to consider because even though God chose to dwell within his temple in Jerusalem, that was never his true home. That was not his final abode. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in Acts chapter 17, where he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he is not confined to any one local space. And now in the new covenant era, with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what did he do? John tells us he came and he dwelt among us. And the verb that he uses there is he tabernacled among us. He made his temple abode among us, right? What does that mean? It means that the person of Jesus is the true sanctuary of God. In Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul says that in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And where is Jesus now? He is at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Jesus is ultimately the sanctuary of God in the mighty heavens. And since Jesus came and finished his mission, the former temple of the Jewish people, which was made by hands, is no longer important before the eyes of God. Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, where she was confused and she was trying to distract him, and she asked the question, where should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain or on the mountain of the Jews in Jerusalem? Where? She was consumed with location, and Jesus responded in this way. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not on this mountain or that mountain. He says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
So that's where we are to worship the Lord. Anywhere on earth, as long as we are worshiping by the Spirit of God and in the truth that God has revealed to us, that full truth that we find in Christ. And we know who God is. We know who is the object of our praise far more clearly now because of Jesus. Therefore, we don't just praise the one who called himself Yahweh of the Old Testament. We praise Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, through Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. Now, this Christian view also applies to our interpretation of verse 2 as well. Look back at the text. He says, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. It's calling us here to praise Yahweh for all his mighty deeds and for his own excellent greatness. That means we are to praise him for all that he has done and for all that he is, his greatness. Now, logically, we should praise God most of all for his greatest deeds, right? And for the fullest revelation of his greatness. And that is why we must, must praise God through Jesus Christ, because he is the greatest thing that Yahweh has ever done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the greatest thing God has ever done, and we are to praise him for it. And also he is, Jesus is the fullest revelation of the very greatness of God himself. As John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There is nothing greater that God could do to show us how great he is than coming down himself in our human nature to dwell among us, to die for sinners like us, suffering in our place, and then rising again from the dead in order to restore us back to life and give us that eternal blessedness with him. There's nothing better that God could have done. Jesus is the exceeding greatness of Yahweh. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the greatest work that Yahweh has ever done in human history or will ever do. Now that radical claim of Christianity is that the object of our praise in this psalm, it hasn't changed. He is still the same Yahweh yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forevermore. However, we know him all the better through Jesus Christ. In fact, since he has revealed himself in this great way, if a person tries to get to know God apart from Jesus, they can't know him rightly at all. As Jesus said, nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So that is the object of our praise, Yahweh, through the person and work of Jesus. Now secondly, the orchestra of praise. Now an orchestra, what is it? It's a large group of musicians who play together on various instruments, usually including strings, woodwinds, brass instruments, and percussion instruments. 
And that's exactly what we find in this passage, right? Look back at verses 3 through 5. Not only that, not only do we find this orchestra of many instruments, but God calls for loud clashing of cymbals in this psalm, in verse 5 there. And what's more, in verse 4, God calls for what? Dancing. Dancing. Now, we find here that God delights in loud dancing orchestras of praise to his glory. You can't argue, argue your way around that clear evidence here. Now, why? Well, to answer that, let's consider how these instruments were used in the Old Testament to stir up God's people in praise. The trumpet. The trumpet is the first instrument that's mentioned here, and that's on purpose because the trumpet is rousing. It has the effect of waking you up, right? The trumpet used to be sounded at the anointing of a king or his return after a long absence, right? You've seen this in movies. The, doo -doo -doo -doo, the king is coming. He's arriving, right? It's, it's rousing. It wakes people up. It calls their attention. And the trumpet blasts were also used to stir up courage in soldiers before a battle. In the New Testament, we find the trumpet as well. We are told that when the Lord Jesus returns, his arrival, the arrival of the king, will be accompanied with what? The sound of the trumpet of God. The trumpet will announce the king's return. And also that final trumpet blast, Jesus, at that blast, what will he do? He will rouse up, raise up the bodies of his chosen followers who have fallen in death in this life and he will raise them back up to life at the sound of that trumpet. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, all of us, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and shall be changed. So at that last trumpet, when Jesus returns, what will happen? The dead will be raised up to life. He will rouse us up in glory. Now why, then, is a trumpet good for accompaniment? We've seen that it's because the trumpet sound, it fits well with words that are sung to God in order to stir up people in remembrance and longing for the return of our King. And even as we prepare for spiritual battle in our life together, the trumpet is a fitting instrument for accompanying rousing praise. What about the other instruments here? Well, more definitely could be said, but I'll be brief here. We find the harp and the lyre. These are stringed instruments that produced a soothing sound. Soothing. Not as rousing and jolting, but soothing. You know, people even today use the harp as a form of therapy, like a musical massage for the heart, for the aches and anxieties of the heart. And this idea of harp therapy, it might sound a bit quirky to you, but it's actually found in the Bible itself. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that whenever the Spirit from God came on King Saul and he was troubled, right, David would take up his lyre, or his harp, and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better. And so, 
we see there that it seems that the sound of stringed instruments like a harp, lyre, or perhaps the guitar today fits very well as a musical accompaniment to songs with lyrics that are intended to bring relief and healing to hurting hearts. These are good instruments as well for carrying a melody for singing to God. In verses 4 to 5, as we consider the other instruments, we also see percussion instruments, such as the timbrel, which can be translated tambourine, and cymbals. Now, what is a tambourine good for? Well, it's good for setting a beat, right? The tempo, the rhythm. And we all know that a good beat moves your feet, right? A good beat just starts to get your feet moving. And it's no surprise that we see in verse 4 what's tied in with praise the Lord with tambourine, praise the Lord with tambourine, and dance, dance. What happens after the Exodus event? when God saved his, and redeemed his people out of Egypt. Miriam, Aaron's sister, takes up a tambourine along with the rest of the women, and they're playing that tambourine with the beat and dancing and praising God together in song. Well, what about the loud clashing of cymbals? The loud clashing of cymbals, if you attend a classical uh, concert, you'll find that often that loud clashing of cymbals, when does it come? It comes at the crescendo, right? When it's coming to a peak, this grand finale, and it's clashing with, with joy, and it also almost sends shivers down your spine with great joy at the, as the music carries you along. Now, as we consider this, what does this mean for our worship today in the church? What does it mean? I'll be honest with you, I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't fully know how this ought to be applied rightly. But I know this much is true. Listen, clearly, God is not opposed to people praising him by dancing. God is not opposed to people dancing to a beat during a worship service. He's not opposed to the variety of instruments accompanying the singing in praise of God. In fact, not only is he not opposed to it, God here is commanding it. He's commanding that we sing with these kinds of instruments, that we dance with a beat to the praise of God. You might ask, what might that look like in a church like ours, right? Which is generally quite traditional in our style of music. Well, I have one concrete example that I think is fitting, and even a form of dancing that could fit here even at Ontario URC. Some years ago with my wife, uh, Ariana, we were up visiting a solidly reformed Presbyterian church for worship. And as we all sang a hymn and there was some guitar and other instruments playing very lightly and in a classy way, not a big showy way, there was a brother up in the front and uh, a couple others as well, but one brother in particular. And what was he doing? He was kind of swaying side to side and bobbing his head a bit bouncing to the rhythm as he was singing to God the praises of the music. He was in it, right? He was dancing. He was dancing. And it didn't seem showy at all. As far as I could tell, he was delighting in the goodness of God as he sang praises to the Lord with his soul and his body. We're not just soul. We're not just mind. We are body as well. And also, he didn't seem to care what other people thought about him. And sometimes that's what holds us back from moving around a little bit with joy and with praise. In my evaluation, what that brother was doing in that church was good and honorable in the sight of God. 
Now, in summary of this point, we do find here that a variety of instruments can be used to accompany a variety of human expressions in praise to God. And what have we seen throughout the whole Psalter? We've seen a whole variety of human expressions, sorrow, joy, uh, anger even, all these different varieties of human expression and these dramatic calls to celebrate God as, as well as despondent, despairing cries of lament. And when a variety of musical instruments are played in worship, it can help accompany us, accompany the people of God to praise him and express ourselves, not just in mind, not just with the intellect, but also with our bodies as well. And sure, this might make some of us uncomfortable. I understand that. That's fine. That's fine. Not everyone needs to agree with me on the application of this text. Let's have Christian love and charity with one another here, but at least see this, that God intended these instruments to be used at least in the Old Testament era. And remember, too, that this psalm is leading us forward to the future glory that we have with God and that worship with him. Why? As we saw earlier, what did we see earlier? Where are we to praise God? Where? It's in his sanctuary which is not the temple made by human hands, but in his mighty heavens. So I am personally convinced that this psalm here at the end of the Psalter is pushing us forward. It transcends the temple worship of Israel. It is more timeless than the temple of Israel. It reaches us now and reaches far beyond into glory. I believe that this is giving us a glimpse of the holy hallelujah that will be ours in glory with music with dancing, with singing. And so with this orchestra of praise, we see that God delights in a diversity of musical instruments that are played to his glory. But most of all, most of all, and this leads us to our third point, God most of all delights in a diversity of voices lifted up to him in song for his glory. And that's what we see in the third point, the ovation of praise. We see the grand finale of the entire Psalter in verse 6, where he says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's hallelujah there. Unlike every other line in this passage, in this psalm, which commands us to praise the Lord, this one is an invitation. It invites us to praise the Lord. It is an expressed desire for us. So, verse 6 expresses the heartfelt desire of the psalmist. This is what his heart longs for. And also, since this is written by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit of God, this is also the heartfelt desire of God himself. And what is that desire? That everything that has breath would praise the Lord. That's what God wants. That's what he wants all of his living and breathing creation, giving him a standing ovation, exulting in his glory with joy, singing of his greatness. That's what God wants. And that is what he will get in the end. He is the sovereign, almighty Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. If that's what he wants, he's going to get it. He gives breath and he is able to tune all breath to sing his praises in the end. And in the New Testament, we find that this will be so. That when Jesus returns at that sound of the last trumpet, every breath 
will recognize that he is Lord and bow the knee in worship of him. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the book of Revelation, we are given a picture of this future glory, and it's the, the setting is the wedding between the Lamb of God, Jesus, and his bride, the church. So in that glorious union of Christ with his church, Christians, we read this in Revelation 19. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the God Almighty, reigns. You see, God will get a standing ovation in the end on that day. And it will sound like a roar of many waters and like the sound of clashing thunder. You can kind of hear the symbols foreshadowing that a bit. And all of that is showing how God in the end will get praise from everything that has breath. Everything that has breath will lift up a cry, hallelujah. The question as we close today is this. Will you be there among that multitude? Will you be among those praising Yahweh through Jesus Christ on that day? Do you have not only the breath as a creature, but do you have the Holy Spirit of God within you? How do you get that breath of eternal life, the Holy Spirit? How? By believing in Jesus Christ, that he is the fullest revelation of the greatness of God. And by trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the greatest work that God has ever done. And that he did that all in love for you, to save you, to redeem you, to reclaim you as his own. Believe in him, and you too will be among those on that day in that great multitude singing hallelujah to the Lord. Believe in him and praise him for the rest of your life with his people here and now. Praise him and you will be among those who arrive in the blessedness of that glory. But why wait? Why wait for that day, right? Let's praise him now. Let's finish this series together with a loud and joyful shout of praise to God. I want us to shout hallelujah together on the count of three. I think we can do this together, loved ones. I know it's a bit uncomfortable for us, but it's good. It's right. It's fitting. Let's do it together. Let's give the Lord a shout of praise. Remember why? Because God is very great, and he deserves what? Very great praise. So let's give him a loud hallelujah to finish off this series. One, two, three. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. We praise you. We are humbled before your sight. And we rejoice that we have the great joy to sing your praises even now in anticipation for that day to come. Lord, we ask that you continue to build us up in this place. That you would unite us in faith, hope, and love through the person and work of Jesus Christ by your spirit 
at work among us. We thank you. We praise you. We love you because you have first loved us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, let's sing now a song of application. We'll sing 236, To God Be the Glory.